This is episode number 1186 with Deborah Turkheimer. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, a former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. Welcome back, my friend. Today's guest is Deborah Turkheimer. She is a professor at Northwestern University Pritzer School of Law, and she earned her undergraduate degree from Harvard College and her law degree from Yale Law School. And Turkheimer served for five years as an assistant district attorney in the New York County District Attorney's Office, where she specialized in domestic violence and child abuse prosecution. And she's written a new book called Credible, Why We Doubt Accusers and Protect Abusers. And in this episode, we discuss how to create a safe space for people to openly talk about their trauma and abuse, what Deborah calls the credibility complex and how to work around it, what to do if you're a victim who hasn't shared your story yet, why abusers have traditionally been protected and what we need to change in our society, the immediate steps you should take after being abused, and so much more. And it's my intention to help spread awareness to help those who have dealt with this type of abuse. But there is a chance that this episode could be a trigger for some of you. And I want to mention that before we get into today's episode. And if you're inspired and feeling moved to share this, then please message some friends, post this on social media, and let people know about this episode so we can get this message out there more. And a big thank you to our fan of the week who left a review over on Apple Podcast recently from Christy, who said, Lewis, your podcast is my favorite to tune into weekly. You manage to share so much value all the time, and I am so fascinated by the mind and body connection. So thank you for continuing to educate me and others. I am super grateful to you. Christy, we appreciate you and everyone listening right now because We are just as much learning on team greatness and my end as you are. So thanks for learning with us. And again, please subscribe to the School of Greatness over on Apple Podcasts right now. Leave us a review at the end of this episode of the part that you were inspired by the most and spread the message of greatness forward. Okay, in just a moment, the one and only Deborah Turkheimer. When you want to find great rates, organize your finances, or just make smarter money decisions, LendingTree is here for you. With the LendingTree app, you can see all your bank accounts at a glance, so you can better understand your spending and saving and build a budget that works for you. Monitor your credit score, explore ways to improve your credit, and get automatic alerts to protect your identity. Plus, LendingTree can help you make sure you're getting your best deal on loans insurance, credit cards, and more through their wide network of banks and lenders. LendingTree gives you personalized tips and insights to help you save money and reach your financial dreams. Whether you want to pay off debt, buy a home, build credit, or just make things a little easier, LendingTree has your back for all your short and long-term goals. And for more than 20 years, LendingTree has helped millions of people simplify their finances with trusted education expert advice and comprehensive services and there are no subscriptions no fees no hassle just easy honest straightforward support to make the most of your money and achieve greater financial health download the free lending tree app right now to get started and see why thousands of people turn to lending tree every day for smarter easier finances terms and conditions may apply nmls number 1136
Welcome back, everyone, to the School of Greatness. I'm very excited to bring our guest, Deborah Turkheimer, in the house. Good to see you. Nice to be here. Welcome to the School of Greatness. Thank you. Uh, you. You put out this amazing book called Credible, Why We Doubt Accusers and Protect Abusers. A lot about sexual abuse, sexual misconduct. I don't know if you know a lot about my story, but my audience has heard me talk about this many times. I was sexually abused as a kid by a man that I didn't know. And for 25 years, held on to kind of the the pain, the suffering, the the silence of it because I was so ashamed of myself for being in that situation. Didn't have the tools or strategies to heal or cope or communicate what I was going through. Um, and it took me 25 years until I finally realized I can no longer live with this. I can no longer live with this pain, suffering, resentment, anger, frustration, shame, and started to find tools on how to communicate it effectively. Um, this is a little bit different, but I, I feel in a way that uh, there's a lot of people in the world who've dealt with sexual misconduct in their life and they don't have tools. They're afraid to come out and speak about it. When they speak about it, people try to discredit them. So my first question is, <clears throat> what would you say are the biggest signs that someone has been abused sexually or gone through some type of sexual misconduct in their life if they're not speaking about it? What can we look for as a friend, a family member, a peer, a coworker, to be like, huh, something's happening. I wonder if it's sexual misconduct. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I have heard you speak about your story. It's so powerful. And I think it um, really brings home how it can help on that path toward healing right. when someone is able to, to talk about what Absolutely. happened. And yet it's so difficult. Um, and we can talk more about why that is. In terms of signs, mm -hmm. I... Got an email just this morning from uh, a man whose daughter was sexually assaulted, and she stayed quiet about it, he said, for over a decade. Wow. Um, and he said, looking back, he saw what he called behavioral changes. And really? This is on my mind because it just came into my box this morning, but I don't think it's unusual. Okay. Um, part of the problem is it's easier to see in hindsight. Right. And we all change and go through <laughs> um, transitions throughout our lives for lots of different reasons, not only because we've been victimized. Um, but I do think that often when someone experiences something traumatic, a sexual assault, let's say, or maybe ongoing sexual harassment, they are giving signs to the people near them that, that might um, indicate that there's something going on. And if you're a friend, a family member, maybe it's worth asking. Right. What if someone never is willing to open up about it? How do you create a safe space consistently if they're like, no, nothing ever happened, but really they're just so afraid yeah. to talk about it, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that honoring that is really important. I mean, people will speak, I think, when they're ready to speak. Yeah. And what we can do if we're close to someone is let them know that we're here mm -hmm. and we will support them when they are ready to talk right. about what happened. And maybe it's in a therapeutic setting. Um, maybe that's the first place where someone discloses. Maybe it's to a roommate or to a friend or family member. But I think what we can do is, is just be there and be ready and not try to force a disclosure before someone is ready because the consequences can be so enormous. Right. Absolutely. How long have you been studying um, this in the world? Because you've been doing this with law and you've been studying this mm -hmm. as a professor, but mm -hmm. how long has this 
been for you now? Well, my first job was as a prosecutor, and I handled um, child abuse and domestic mm -hmm. violence and sex crimes yes. cases. That was in Manhattan. And that was now, um, you know, many years ago. I, I graduated from law school in like the mid 90s. Okay. And so ever since, I've been thinking about these kinds mm. of cases and thinking about the, the people who are victimized. Um, okay. What did it, what drew you to this work? Was it seeing a case that you're like, this is just not fair or this is unjust, or people are going through, yeah. you know, not getting their fair justice? What was the thing that really said, I want to fight for this or be a stand mm -hmm. for this? Mm -hmm. Well, the domestic violence cases that I handled from mm -hmm. the very beginning were the most compelling to me. And I did feel like when people are hurt by those they trust, mm. that that injury is just devastating in a way that, that no other really is. And it seemed to me that the system didn't respond very well to those kinds of crimes and mm -hmm. people didn't really know what to make of it. And so I think that was the beginning of, of thinking about this uh, on Got a sustained so basis. What, what were like the common crimes that you would see? What were the thing, the themes that just kept happening where you're like, this is unfair mm -hmm. or that the system doesn't work yeah. in the advantage of someone who actually had something yeah. harmful happen to them? What were those common themes? Yeah, a lot was just the expectation that we put on the victim to behave in certain ways. Uh, and then when victims didn't, um, they would be penalized and they wouldn't get justice. So their credibility, they lost their credibility for yeah. being emotional or yeah. lashing out or screaming or whatever. Or not leaving, right? Staying in the relationship, oh. um, not breaking it off. Um, you could have left at any moment. Why'd you stay? Right. And so maybe it wasn't as bad as you thought, right? Absolutely. Just saying these things. Yeah. Um, you didn't leave, you didn't report right away, you didn't, um, yeah, you didn't sever all contact. And so these kinds of things were held against victims and they weren't able to, to, to get the justice they deserved. Let's say someone did leave, they, they blocked the person, they severed all contact, and then they brought this to the courts. Mm -hmm. would, would they get their justice? Or was it still, they weren't credible, did you see? There were still such barriers to belief. Really? Yeah. I think that cases huh. involving children and cases involving women who are alleging sexual or domestic violence are some of the hardest to prove because yeah. we don't want to believe it. It's, it's so deeply threatening, I think, to the way that we think about our intimate relationships and the ways that we interact and the ways that we want to imagine gender relations that mm. it's just destabilizing. So domestic violence, it's hard to believe that is what we're saying. Like he beat me or she beat me. It's hard for someone to believe that in the, in the courts. I think it's hard to believe it and hard not to blame the victim and hard. For their part in it. For their part in it. To so it's, not, not like, it's not just like, okay, he, he or she didn't just hit you for no reason. Right. What he wouldn't just walk up and hit you. There had to be something that caused right. the argument, the stress. Right. Which obviously is, there's nothing that can justify hitting someone. But that's what they would say, right? Like, well, you instigated, or you, yeah. what would they say typically? Yeah, what did, what did you do to bring this upon yourself? Oh, what did wow. you do? And, you know, there's also this, um, this need to care about mm. what happened and to think that it's important enough to, if you're a juror, to convict, right? To, to act in some way. So you've got to believe it. You've got to not blame the victim. And then in the end, you've got to care enough to do something about it. Otherwise, mm. it just goes on and nothing is done. Well, there probably also has to have evidence, right? There's got to be some type of evidence of what happened. And it goes between what he said and she said. or Yeah. Right? 
Well, that's true, right? In every criminal case, these are hard to prove. They're beyond a reasonable doubt is the standard of proof in criminal court, and that's rightly mm. a high standard. But when it comes to these kinds of cases, as a practical matter, it's even more difficult to prove. Really? Yeah. And if, if we would there's have, no video footage, uh, you know, especially if there's no video footage, it's like, who do we believe? Yeah, I mean, credibility is at the heart of these cases. And really? going back to your earlier question, I think that's when I really started to kind of focus on this as the the central thread that runs through it all. Credibility is everything. It is. And each side, I'm assuming, of the case is trying to decredit the other person. Is that typically how it goes? Yeah. And not, that's, not let's get the facts straight. Let's just right. decredit the person so their facts don't seem legit. Yeah, and that's our adversary system, right? That's how it works. That's, you know, it, it, there are rules of evidence that constrain what lawyers can do, but that's the game. That's that's how it's going to go. And so I think what we ought to, to be concerned about or to sort of look out for is what works, what strategies work. To win the case. Yeah, if a defense attorney gets up there and asks, what were you wearing, and the jury doesn't care, then those questions are going to stop coming, right? It's only if it works that those questions are going to keep coming. Interesting. Has there ever been cases that you've seen over the years where someone who committed the crime is like, you know what? Everything this person is saying is true. I did 100% of these things. It's my fault. I take full responsibility. You're right. I'm sorry. Give me my punishment. Do you ever see that? Well, when I was a prosecutor, defendants could plead guilty before trial, and that did often happen. Yeah. Um, and sometimes they pled guilty um, because, you know, they didn't want to face a trial. Sometimes mm. I think they pled guilty because they accepted responsibility. So it can happen. Okay. That's good then, right? It's good. Someone's, okay. And how many of these cases, how many of, the, of these cases do you see that are uh, men against women and women against men? Like where the, the victim is the man or the victim is the woman? Is it highly skewed with women, I'm assuming, being... Yes. So yes. the vast majority of 90%, cases, 99%? Upwards of 90%. 90%. Yeah. But there are some cases in the other way? There were a few, and those um, tended to be a little bit different in the way that the a pattern of violence looked. Gotcha. Um, but it is absolutely the case that women can be violent yeah. and that men can be victims of female violence and male violence. I've heard of... Uh, some men who've been assaulted but yeah. ha don't have the courage to come out and speak yeah. about it or do anything because it's even more, you know, in their mind it's shameful to not be able to handle that or yeah. to be beaten by a woman or hit yeah. by a woman. It's like, is that something you've studied as well? Like just maybe men not even talking about yes. the violence or the sexual misconduct in that way because it's looked as just shameful or weak or whatever it might be that men might feel? Yeah, I think that that's, that's very true. I mean, mm -hmm. in the thinking about why people don't come forward, and we know that most victims of particularly sexual violence will never, will never report. And right. silencing is a huge problem. And right. one of the reasons is the anticipated reaction of people. What are people going to say? And if you're a man and you've been assaulted, this is often, I think, going to be on your mind. Is, right. is Am I going to be disbelieved or discredited um, because the notion is that men don't get hurt. Right, or made fun of or yeah. whatever, judged and yeah. embarrassed. Or... Yeah. yeah, and we should also say that in same-sex relationships, you know, there, there are different dynamics that, that come up um, mm -hmm. with these barriers to belief. And you talk about uh, a thing called a credibility complex. What does that mean? 
And the idea is that we're shaped by forces. We don't even realize it, but we're shaped by these forces that impact how we think about credibility. We all want to believe that we're being fair mm. and that we're judging credibility in an unbiased way. But we live in this culture that shapes the way we think about credibility and our law shapes the way mm. we think about credibility. And most of us don't even notice it. So, I mean, it's fascinating and I think really important to start to see these forces and start to kind of unpack how we're thinking about credibility so we can do better. So how do we, so we have to essentially reshape the way our psychology thinks about credibility, mm -hmm. which has been around for, I guess, thousands of mm -hmm. years, I'm assuming, or longer. Mm -hmm. So how do, we, how do we reshape our minds about credibility mm -hmm. then? What's mm -hmm. the step for us to do that? Is it first with the law, mm -hmm. how it's shaped, or is it with human behavior and psychology? I think it's got to be culture oh, wow. moving and reforming law along the way. Got it. I mean, there are lots of places in our law that I think need to be changed. Uh -huh. But the, the bigger task is to transform the way our culture um, imagines credibility and meets out credibility judgments. But it sounds overwhelming. <laughs> and as we're talking about it, it can seem like way too big to make any progress. But I believe that each one of us actually does have the power to do better, and that's mm. how we're going to transform culture. We yeah. do it person by person. We do it one credibility judgment at a time. Mm. Okay. So if you could um, shape culture in this moment, Deborah, if you could say, what I'm about to say is going to change the way we think about each other as human beings and the credibility of one another moving forward. Mm -hmm. The law will shape around this. The mm -hmm. way we perceive ourselves will shape around this. What would you say if you could snap your fingers mm -hmm. and people started to view things differently? Mm -hmm. What would need to happen? We would need to start to care more about people across um, differences. We would need to find shared humanity and mm -hmm. realize that when someone has been hurt, it matters. Um, it. And be willing to disrupt the status quo in order to um, send that really powerful message that this survivor counts that what happened is wrong, um, and then it has to change. There has to be some accountability in our lives, in our formal systems, but mm. even just in the way that we re react with one another. Right. We tolerate way mm. too much abuse in our midst. And if we really care about this issue, we need to start making clear that it's not acceptable. Yeah. All of us have a role in that. Okay. So what is the, what could someone who is, been sexually abused or dealt with sexual misconduct, how should they approach communicating it? Mm -hmm. To be believed mm -hmm. by their friends, to be believed by their boss or coworkers, to be believed by the family or society? Yeah. What would you say is like, okay, an event happened that you were sexually abused or abused in some way and it was not okay. Like you did what you needed to do to stop it. You said no. You you would whatever you tried to do. Mm -hmm. You it was clear that this was not okay, but it happened, and the person did the abuse. What should be the next step for someone? And how can someone, if they're listening to this or watching this, what actions should they take next? Or a friend that happened to someone, what could they say to their friend mm -hmm. that they should do next? Mm -hmm. Well, part of the problem is that most of us don't really understand trauma. Okay. And we, um, we see someone as being deceitful when, in fact, they're, they're impacted by trauma. So I'll give you some examples. Yes, when someone please. comes forward and doesn't have 
a full and complete memory of everything. Yeah. Um, often that's perceived as, well, why can't you tell me the story from A to Z with every letter in between? Because you try to protect yourself. Your brain protects yourself Absolutely. from trauma. Yeah. Absolutely. Try to block it out. Yes. And neuroscientists are really clear about all the ways in which we really shouldn't expect a narrative to be linear and complete. But most of us aren't neuroscientists. And so unless we've experienced trauma ourselves or we've become educated about it, we might believe that someone is lying mm. when they're not. And so that's a really hard truth to hear if you're someone who has been traumatized, right? Because what are you going to do about it? You sort of have to prepare yourself for people not responding wow. the way you'd want them to respond. I do think that we're becoming, as a society, a little bit more educated about trauma mm -hmm. and a little bit better versed in the idea that people don't always report right away. And when they do... They may remember certain, for instance, sensory perceptions mm. more than they do, um, let's say, everything that happened right yes. before, everything that happened right after. But if you're someone who's going to come forward, I think you have to be, um, you know, sort of prepared for someone to say, um, I want to, why don't you remember A, B, or C? Right. If you're the person listening, you don't have to do that, right? You, you can be a person who learns about trauma and recognizes that when your friend discloses to you, it may not be the story that, that you're expecting to hear. Right. And that person may be more emotional than you expect, or maybe less emotional than you expect. Mm -hmm. And none of that means that the person is lying. Right. This is interesting because, ex educate me on the, the legal system. Do they go more based on the story or actually the facts of what has happened in a scenario, in just the law in general? Is it more like the story that's shaped around the facts or the facts itself? Well, or is it everything kind of combined? Yeah, I mean, we only can, we, we get at the facts through what, what, what people describe. Got it. And if you're a law enforcement officer, what you'd want to see is um, that there would be more evidence gathered, that there would be corroboration mm -hmm. of someone's account. Interesting. But oftentimes that doesn't happen. Gosh, it's so hard to communicate it then, right? It's, it's so hard to communicate it then. And when a person is skeptical and you're describing abuse, I think it becomes even more difficult to sort of persevere. And so we put these really, mm. really heavy burdens on survivors. And we have these systems that are just not responsive the way we would, I think, as you know, people of goodwill and good faith, we'd want them to respond. Right. Man, because I'm just trying to think if someone was telling me a story, and I mean, how do we come from a un, uh, an unbiased point of view to listen and not think like, are, you know, are they elaborating this? Are they diminishing what happened? Is it, because when I know in the past, when I felt extreme hurt in my soul, in my heart, I can elaborate sometimes. You know, personally, I can be like, oh, you know, this is, but what actually happened mm -hmm. is there's facts, and then how I felt is like mm -hmm. the story around the facts. Mm -hmm. So, how can someone communicate it effectively to get justice? Mm -hmm. Is it like, it just seems like a messy, challenging thing? It, yeah, <laughs> it seems hard. It's really messy. There's a difference, I think, between talking to like a police officer okay. and a prosecutor and a friend. And a friend. Got it. And, you know, I think. It, Again, I, I hesitate to put more burden on the shoulders of survivors because they're yes. dealing with so much in the aftermath. Right. But I will say that context matters. 
and who you're talking to and mm. what you want to get out of that conversation might impact what it is that you're going to talk about and how much detail mm -hmm. you're going to go into and how much you're going to lean into the feeling side of it as opposed to the fact side of it. Got it. Okay. Wow. It just seems messy for survivors it's, to try to like communicate this yeah. and, and be credible, right? It just seems messy. Um, so why do we protect the abusers or the, uh, the accused abusers, either one? Why do we protect those individuals over their survivors more? Mm -hmm. Well, I think one answer is that when we're asked to believe an account of an abuse and we're asked to do something about it, that's difficult, right? We're, <laughs> it's easier to do nothing and to just preserve the status quo. And sometimes we do that by saying, it's a he said, she said, mm -hmm. there's nothing I can do. I don't know what happened. Wow. But that's protecting the abuser. Interesting. It's not changing anything. And when nothing changes, he's protected. So what should happen next? If it's a friend listening, is it, do you, do you approach the uh, abuser mm -hmm. uh, as the friend or you just say, we need to go to the police right now? Or what should happen mm -hmm. next if it's a friend listening, trying to help? Yeah. One thing is to realize if you're a friend listening or a family member listening, mm -hmm. your standard is not beyond a reasonable doubt. You're not a criminal court jury. You're right. not sentencing someone to prison, right? So the, the notion that you have to be convinced beyond a reasonable doubt by something mm -hmm. I think is off base. And right. for people to realize that can be important because um, it then frees you up to say, this is my friend asking me to support him or her, I can, I can do that. Right. I can be here and be a listener and support you. And, right. Yeah. And I think from the survivors I've spoken to over the years, that's really what they need in that moment is to have that person say, I'm here for you. you know, I'm here to support you. Do you, want, do you want me to go to the police precinct with you to help you file a report? Do you want me to help you find a therapist? Do you mm -hmm. want to talk to someone? Um, who's a professional? Do you um, just want to be able to talk to me? What What is it that you need? I'm here for you. Yes. Should all accounts of all levels or all accounts of sexual misconduct or physical abuse, do you believe all levels, ranges, uh, should be taken to the police? Or should they be only a certain, once it crosses mm -hmm. a certain level? Mm -hmm. And, or, you know, is it yeah. once it happens so many times, like what, yeah. what should happen? I think there's a, a continuum. There's a spectrum of, of, of gender-based violence mm -hmm. and sexual violence. And it's really only at those more severe ends of the spectrum that we define something as criminal. Gotcha. And so can you give me the, what does that range look like? What's criminal and what's mm -hmm. not criminal? So like, for instance, um, we, the criminal law would prohibit... Um, let's say sexual intercourse or sexual contact um, without consent and sometimes also with force. Okay, okay. without consent. Okay. But wouldn't prohibit what we might consider to be street harassment, um, right? Someone like talking nasty or flirting or Mm -hmm. whatever and not not stopping mm -hmm. constantly me walking after someone and talking to mm -hmm. them going around the block mm -hmm. and saying things saying give me your number or yep. 
whatever they want to say, right? Something would have to be severe or protracted. Now, if someone you know was a stalker and it mm-hmm. continued, then you could imagine it being a criminal matter. Got it. But the criminal law really deals with just the most egregious conduct. And short of that, interesting. We have workplace sexual harassment law, and that's you know something that covers employees, mm-hmm. some employees. Um, and then we have a lot of misconduct that isn't covered by law, and that we have to deal with in different ways. It, just with family, friends, mm-hmm. and facing it and mm-hmm. saying, hey, this is not acceptable mm-hmm. for me, this mm-hmm. behavior. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay, so the law is saying without consent or with force. Mm-hmm. If that happens, you should be taking this to the police. Well, you can take it to the police. I don't know if I'm in a position to tell every survivor that that's the right course. Okay. Because our criminal justice system so often responds so poorly. And gotcha. What you know, usually happens if you take something to the police where there was without consent happened mm-hmm. or with force? What mm-hmm. most of the time happens? Well, you know, the, the arrest rates in depending upon the police department, the jurisdiction, are fairly low. Mm. Um, so, you know, maybe 20% on average across the country. And the and rest arrest of the, will happen. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And the rest of those cases go nowhere. And along the way, it can be, um, it can be difficult to be, to be told either, I don't believe you, or it was your fault, you were drinking, you know, you were mm. doing whatever. Um, or it just doesn't seem that serious and we're not going to move forward. Like those are really difficult things to hear. And survivors often say that the aftermath is worse than more trauma, the abuse. Yeah. 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 Just constantly reliving it for months and months is more painful than moving on. Especially when you don't have that, that validation, right? Mm. When you don't have that officer or prosecutor or title nine officer, HR officer saying, yeah, this this happened, and it was wrong, and I'm going to do something about it. Mm. I'm going to hold him accountable. If you don't have that, then you feel, I think you can feel even more alone. Yeah. Do you know how many cases of sexual misconduct happen a year that are, uh, I guess, counted? Do we know this from like the, the courts and police departments? No. I mean, you'd have to, each state has, you know, keeps its own statistics. The federal, you know, the FBI keeps its own statistics. Wow. Everything is really disaggregated. And then we also have to remember, again, that most of it never gets reported. So we're seeing right. like a tiny fraction. When we look at these systems, we're only seeing a little bit of it. And it all comes down to credibility. It That's comes down to, to credibility. Credibility. Who's credible? Yes. And we can have all of the laws in the world. And yet, if we don't get credibility right, it doesn't, they don't matter. They, they don't mean anything. Really? So what can, a, what can, I guess, a victim do to build credibility then? Mm-hmm. Well, I know from people who are um, journalists, for instance, that one thing that they will often ask if they're reporting out a story is, did you tell anyone around the time? Right? Even if you didn't report to the police, did you disclose? Is there anyone in your orbit who we can talk to who will remember what you, you said, yeah, yeah. You telling me. Or going back to our earlier conversation, were there changes in your life that people may have witnessed, mm-hmm. right? That in retrospect can corroborate the idea that something bad happened. Right. And so there are ways to, to go back in time if, if you know, somebody comes forward publicly or to the police only years after the fact. Yes. There are ways to kind of 
go back, but it's really difficult. Right? Gotcha. This is a theme, how messy and complicated all of this is. So if something happens to you, you should speak to a friend or two right away. That's what I'm hearing you say. I'm, I'm hoping that you know, for people who have been victimized, that they can find someone mm. in their life right. who they trust to tell. What about writing a letter, journaling? Does that help too? To be like, I recall them some things, mm -hmm. and yeah, that's you know, that's another powerful form of evidence if it ever comes to it, right? This is my diary, and this is what I wrote down, or I wrote a letter, I, I kept an account about it, so that can be really effective. Um, but it's also really difficult to, as you say, to to relive all of that and yes. um, to you know to have to do that kind of processing so close to the incident itself. I think is 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 often too much to bear. And why do you think it's so hard for people to leave, I guess, relationships of violence mm -hmm. or with a theme of these kind of explosions mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. misconduct? Why do you think it's so hard for someone to leave those relationships after six months, a year, years of being in kind of the same environment? Yeah, I mean, so many reasons. Um, there's maybe financial dependence. Maybe there are kids in the mix and this individual is a, a decent, seems like a decent parent. Um, often mm. it's frightening to leave because leaving can be the most dangerous time in, in a, an abusive relationship. Or mm. there's still an emotional connection and you know, often this is not right. bad all the time and there's still love in the relationship. Um, there, you know, there are so many vulnerabilities um, that are at play here, mm -hmm. and these lives are often really intertwined. Yeah. I mean, that's true in relationships that aren't abusive, and that's true in relationships <laughs> right. that are abusive. Right. So, what can someone do so it doesn't get to that place? You know, so that okay, we've been in this environment. I feel like, man, it's just I don't feel safe when this happens. You know, maybe it's only once every three to six months that my partner yeah. lashes out or does these things. Mm. How can they support themselves if they're not going to leave? Maybe a semi-toxic relationship to shift the relationship so mm -hmm. that those things don't happen again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot to ask of someone who's in a relationship that is controlling, yeah. which is sort of what, maybe what you're describing, and the violence isn't ongoing, but it's sporadic. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's really hard to, to get someone to change. Yes. Um, and so, <laughs> so I tend to think that looking out for these warning signs is really important and, mm -hmm. and being able to sort of protect oneself um, as best as, as one can, because again, yeah. it's just gonna be really difficult to, to, to put the burden on yourself if you're in this relationship to change him. Yeah. And why do you think abusers are protected in general? Why are they, over the years, why have they been protected? Well, they tend to be, um, you know, tend to have more power mm. in our society, more status, more privilege, more authority. and More money or whatever, yeah. Absolutely. We, um, mm. we revere, often we revere some of these men. And, you know, we've seen in the Me Too era, some of them have been brought to some justice and, you know, the conviction of Harvey Weinstein and R. Kelly recently mm -hmm. um, illustrate that w we maybe can do better. But think of all of the years, the decades, and the many, many victims um, before 
we were able to sort of do anything yeah. to, to hold the, these men to account. Yeah, Michael Jackson as well, even, at, you know, nothing happened until after, yeah. many years after his death when a documentary came out and, um, and he got away from trial, right? He went to trial and then got out. I think right? that's right. And these are revered. These are revered mm -hmm. men. I mean, they are sort of the... You don't want to believe. Is that what it is? You don't want to believe. don't want to believe. That they that they would be capable of this, mm. and and you'd rather believe that either you know these 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 victims or seeking attention, the or they were trying to. Mm -hmm. Which is that ever the case though? Or is there certain cases where what an accuser is saying didn't happen? Or I mean, what in the victor victim saying yeah. like that didn't really happen? You know, yes, it, you know, it is. It has to be said that false allegations occur, right? Yeah. And it would be disingenuous to suggest otherwise. Mm -hmm. But it happens much less frequently than people tend to think. Right. And so, like the best estimates are around five percent of yeah. allegations um, of sexual violence mm -hmm. are false. Okay. And if you ask like law enforcement officers or even just people on the street, what do you think that number is? It's you know tends to be like oh 50 50 or a majority. Oh, wow, really? A majority? Wow. You think you think it's more like five percent? More like five percent is what the research suggests. Wow. Okay. Powerful. Interesting. So why is someone like when you mentioned R. Kelly? Why is because didn't he have like a trial like I don't know back in the two thousand five mm -hmm. or eight or something mm -hmm. and then but then I don't even know what happens. He was. He was. Acquitted. He was found not guilty. Found not guilty yeah. back in 2000-something. In Chicago, yeah, in the early Chicago. 2000s. And this was probably after a ye years or maybe decades of him yeah. kind of building this yeah. relationship with these young women. I haven't watched the documentary, the series, or whatever it is, so I'm actually out of the loop. But what happened recently, mm -hmm. and why did it take someone so long um, for this to happen when people knew it was happening for years, uh, you know, the people have been speaking about it for years. It yeah. wasn't just like a couple of girls. It was like dozens and dozens, I guess. So why does it take so many people mm -hmm. for finally, okay, now we'll make something happen? So many people and the work of so many people. Mm -hmm. Surviving R. Kelly, the docuseries. Um, yeah, the Mute R. Kelly campaign. That's crazy. And it was young women of color who tend um, to be most easily cast aside. And mm. so this wasn't a case, I think, where people didn't believe it was happening. They just didn't care enough to do anything. Really? So people kept buying his music. And he had, according to a journalist by the name of Jim DeRogatis, who's written about this for years, and he's done so much work to uncover this, he puts the number in the thousands, the people who knew and just didn't care, just let it go on. What? He had, you know, he had people around him. He had bodyguards and drivers and, you know, managers and, and people just look the other way. We this should be in Fiji. For, this was happening for decades, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, and only, he was just convicted, um, just convicted in Brooklyn. What, we're just convicted in Brooklyn. What happened, what was the sentence? I don't even know what happened, I'm not even aware. He has not yet been sentenced. He, he has been sentenced, convicted. gotcha. He will, he will be sentenced to, to likely the rest of his life. Really? So, for decades, seemingly good men and women were aware of this. Mm. but didn't take action. Mm -hmm. So what I'm hearing you say is this is a cultural thing mm -hmm. first. Like we should just become better human beings with the people around us and not be a stand for this if someone yeah. this, this is happening in someone's life. Yeah, this goes back to the idea that we need to care more. We need yeah. to, to, to find shared humanity mm -hmm. and um, act when we see suffering in our midst, whether it's sexual violence or any other kind of violence 
it's um, you know it, it it's not okay just to turn the other way. Mm-hmm. How do we how do we work on not shifting blame onto victims then? Mm-hmm. How do we how do we not blame and discredit? How do we truly listen to what they're saying, the facts, their feelings? Yeah. Believe a hundred percent of their word, uh, and then be in support. How do we not blame? Mm-hmm. Certain, you know, certain kinds of scenarios are most likely to trigger blame, and so we can start mm. by recognizing, like, oh, dr- intoxication, right? That's something that, what as a you, culture, um, we are very likely to sort of point the finger and blame shift when there's drinking. It's almost like, oh, if you had one sip, then I can't trust you. Yeah, and or it's your fault, or you were, you could have left at any moment, or whatever the. Yeah, I mean, we sort of put this um, burden on victims to, to, to fend off the abuse. And if they don't or can't, they didn't fight hard enough, or they were intoxicated, or maybe they went back um, to his apartment and they were interested in doing something short of what happened, right? But mm. all of that is seen as sort of asking for it. And it seems, just to say it out loud, it maybe sounds kind of retrograde, and there are maybe people listening who think like, oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. But it's so ingrained in us that I think even people who think of themselves as you know, being progressive and you know, not falling into that trap, we just, we just, I think, almost instinctively start to ask, what did, what did this person do? Mm-hmm. And, there's a psychological reason for it. Like it's protective to think that if we all behave the way we should, we're not going to get hurt. It's called the just world theory. Oh, just and thinking that this person will be a decent person and I wouldn't do this, so I'm assuming this person wouldn't do this. Yeah, and that we're all going to be safe if we mm. just do the right thing. We can keep ourselves safe. Bad things only happen when people bring it upon themselves. Mm. And like the world would be a better place and it would be a safer place if that were true. It's not true. Yeah, okay. So yeah, that's a that's an interesting scenario. I'm not sure if this happens a lot where if like, okay, well, the uh, the victim went to the person's apartment, you, you went there, you could have not gone there, but maybe they wanted to have some interaction but they didn't want it to go as far as it did. Yeah. And so that becomes discredited. Well, you were there, you could have left at any moment type of conversation, right? Yeah, and part of what's so tragic is that this also gets internalized by by victims. And so it's not just that other people are blaming and saying, why did you go back? You didn't know him that well, or you've been Mm. drinking. But the person who was hurt is very likely to ask those same questions. Blaming themselves. Yes. Why was I such an idiot? I could have left at this moment, or this moment, they could have said this to themselves. Yeah, those same cultural forces are taken on board by survivors. Yeah. This is just messy. <laughs> it's it's, it's How, difficult, yes. What do you want people to know about this? Um, and do you think it's important for people to be sharing their abuse stories publicly, you know, on social media and talking mm-hmm. about their abuse stories? Should they only be addressing it privately with the person that I interacted with and their friends and family or to the the, the law, like how should people handle this moving forward? I think it's such a personal decision. Yeah. I think it's not for anyone else to judge who someone shares their story with, yeah. on what terms, when. Um, but I do believe that kind of in this Me Too era that we're living in now, 
it is becoming easier. I'm not、mm. going to say easy. It's not right. easy. It's still hard. It's, it's becoming really hard. It's becoming more accepted. Accepted to do it. Yes, yes, that there are more stories that are being told,、mm-hmm. and and it can be really empowering, and it can be、uh, validating. Yes, it's just not always that way. And so I wouldn't want to be heard to say, "Hey, everybody out there, go tell your stories. It's going to be great." It's not always great. Yeah, and it might be messy for many months. You might have to relive the trauma and and deal with a lot of that stuff too. Absolutely, and because we don't have systems that deal fairly with these kinds of allegations, and because we in our daily lives don't always do as well as we should,、right. survivors bear the brunt of it. Oh man! So, if you could give some advice to someone who's dealt with this, whether it be recently or in their past, and they haven't addressed it with、mm-hmm. a friend or family member, or publicly, or the police. What would you say should be their steps moving forward? Is it call a therapist? Is it tell a friend? What would you say moving forward they、mm-hmm. should do? I would say think about whether there's someone in either in your life or someone who you could call upon, like、mm-hmm. a therapist, like a counselor, maybe a teacher,、um, who you trust、um, to to begin processing this with. Yeah, and maybe that's a first step, and you know, and maybe it leads to. A formal complaint down the road, and and maybe it doesn't. But to be able to release this burden that you're carrying, if you、yeah. can find a way to do that,、um, you know, then that 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 probably will help on the path toward healing. Right, at least for your own healing.、Yeah. Maybe you won't get justice on whatever happened, but you'll feel like you can let go of this. Yeah, the weight, the yeah, the pain, the trauma. And at the same time, I think it's not、um, it's not wrong. To, you know, to to keep silent if that if that's what you can do, right?、Mm-hmm. If that's all that you can do, it's not for anyone else to judge that silence. And I think that we in the you know in the sort of the Me Too moment, we want to、mm-hmm. be able to say everyone should should tell their stories. And I I I just want to be careful to say that、um, what's right for one survivor may not be right for another. Got it. Yeah. So just because someone's saying you need to share this publicly doesn't mean you have to. If you don't want to, yeah. I mean, one of the、um, women I spoke to for the book described、um, being criticized for how she shared her story. Her friend, people in her friend group, didn't think that it was appropriate to do it the way she did it, and it involved、mm. social media. And so, you know, you you sort of have to expect that it the reaction may not be what you want it to be.、Mm. And、um, at a time when you're feeling vulnerable and when you need the support of your community. To get the opposite is brutal. Yeah, so just be mindful who you're sharing with first. Make sure it's someone you feel like it's not going to judge you or shame you or put you down. A safe、uh, confidant to speak with or a therapist, a confidential therapist, and then figure out your next step from there. Yeah, what I'm hearing you say. I think that's right.、Uh, what are we to get when we go through this book? Credible: Why We Doubt Accusers and Protect Abusers. Oh well,、um, if you are someone who's experienced abuse and、um, you've come forward and had a horrible aftermath,、mm-hmm. or an aftermath that was less than what you wanted, you didn't get the response from the people you turned to. I think you'll understand better why that happened、okay. when you read the book. Yeah. If you haven't come forward, I think you'll understand more why you've been silenced and how the、mm-hmm. credibility complex can silence you. Right. And if you're someone who 
either has heard an allegation of abuse from your coworker, your roommate, your family member, or you're gonna hear that allegation because we're now in this time when stories are being told, right? Mm-hmm. The book will help you deal and respond more fairly. Mm. Um, and, and, and I think the way that you'd wanna respond and yeah. a way that's not biased and that doesn't rely on misunderstandings about trauma and the way victims behave, but is more accurate mm-hmm. and is more informed. Right. So who should be getting it then? Someone who's listening that if they haven't dealt with any sexual misconduct themselves, should they get it for themselves to be educated? Or is it more for someone who's been, who dealt with, who's a victim, who's gone through this? Everyone should get the book because, you know, (laughs) frankly, um, most people, especially women, but Mm -hmm. men as well, have experienced some kind of sexual violation in the past. And it may not be on the severe side, it may not be criminal, but it's something that makes all of us, I think, relate to the experience, or many of us, most of us. And then the rest of the people out there who are listening, who um, maybe can't relate to what it's like to be a victim and come forward, are going to hear from someone they love right. and are going to want to do right by that person. Eventually, in the future. Well, I think the statistic, if I'm remembering, one in four women have been sexually abused, one in six men have been sexually abused. Uh, there's a there's a resource for men, oneinsix.org, mm-hmm. that helps men unpack and mm-hmm. figure out how to deal with the shame mm-hmm. and come forward. And there's a resource line there. You can call people at oneinsix.org. I'm not sure the best place is for women. If you have a resource. I have a resource page on my website. And okay. And that one in six um, organization is on the resource page right. as well. Um, yeah, it's a great organization. Uh, and your website, which you're not that prominent on social media, but your website uh, Deborah, it's just your name, Deborah Turkheimer, right? That's it. Okay, so if you go there, we'll link it up there and make sure everyone has access to that. We're gonna get you on social media here soon. That's my, <laughs> that's my goal. Start putting some of the stuff from the book out on social we'll, media. We'll see, we'll Let's see go. about that. <laughs> get one of your students to make an account for you and put it out there. Um, the book's called Credible, Why We Doubt Accusers and Protect Abusers. I think it's extremely time, timely right now with everything that's happened and all the different series and documentaries that are coming out, you can learn more why certain people have gotten away with these things for years, why our society has allowed certain people to get away with these things for years and not held a higher standard, and how we can start to shift that around for the better. So uh, I wanna acknowledge you, Deborah, for, for doing the work you've been doing for so long and being passionate about trying to find justice um, for people that don't find justice, that are going through a really challenging time whether there was a criminal uh, act against them or just something that was just, they didn't want, uh, you know, that they didn't want that wasn't criminal, uh, figuring out how to be heard, seen, acknowledged, how to heal that process moving forward because I know it can for some be extremely scarring for the rest of their life until they learn how to release the trauma, until they learn how to communicate effectively, which is extremely hard to do because as I know you study with therapists and psychologists and neurologists, that the brain kind of blocks these traumas to protect us. So learning how to unblock and let it go in a healthy way is uh, a very powerful thing to do. And as my therapist tells me, healing is not an event, it's a journey. It takes time. Just because you say something one time doesn't mean you're healed and everything's good. This may take years, decades for people to fully 
release and let go. So I acknowledge you for doing the work, doing the research, being a valuable uh, voice, even if you're not on social media yet, but being a valuable voice and <laughs> putting this resource out there. Thank you. And I'm going to encourage you to be on social media and start sharing more. I've seen some of your videos and I'm excited for you to start doing more interviews on this. Um, so we can go to your website. We can get the book there. We can get it on Amazon. How else can we be of support to you with this message? Um, you know, I appreciate everything you've said. And I, you know, I put, put everything into the book. I've, as you say, I'm passionate about this. Yes. I believe we can do better. The book is written... Um, not in a kind of pointing fingers way, mm. not in a way to suggest that, you know, people are bad apples mm -hmm. or that they they want to hurt victims or protect abusers, not at all. It proceeds on the assumption that we all want to do right and we want a world in which sexual abuse isn't happening. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, my hope is that people will read the book and make changes in their daily lives. That's how we change culture. Yeah. We don't wave a magic wand and, and remake our culture overnight. We don't remake our law overnight. But each one of us, in the way that we interact with the person who we're closest to, um, can, can make the world better. Yeah. One interaction at a time. And with the family, yeah. with friends, yeah. it doesn't have to be like yeah. to the world, but one friendship at a time. Yeah. Uh, this is a question I ask everyone at the end of our interview. It's called the three truths. Yeah. So imagine it's your last day on earth, a hypothetical scenario, and you've accomplished all of your wildest dreams and goals. Okay. Everything's come true for you personally and professionally. Okay. Uh, but for whatever reason, all the work you've created, this book, and all the messages you put out into the world, they have to go somewhere else. We don't have access to them anymore. They're gone from this world. They're in some other world. Uh, so we don't have access to your content anymore. But you get to leave behind three lessons to the yeah. world. Okay. Three things you know to be true from your experiences in life that you'd want to leave with us. Mm -hmm. This is all we have to remember of your message. What would you say are those three truths? Okay. I'm going to start with uh, people are complicated mm -hmm. and imperfect. And so what, what we can do is find shared humanity and um, show, show grace yeah. Be generous um, when we interact <laughs> with our fellow human beings. Yes. That's, that's one. Yep. Um, t my second truth is integrity is mm -hmm. essential. Yes. And we'll always make mistakes and we'll fall short because going back to that first truth, we're imperfect. But we can act with integrity. We can be true to ourselves and our, our values and our core commitments. And um, that seems to me to be at the, the core of sort of what it is to, to be a, a good human being. Mm -hmm. And then I get one more, yeah. one more truth. Um, okay, I'll say anger can be channeled toward change. Mm. And that when you see injustice in the world or unfairness or inequality or someone who's hurting, someone who's suffering, and it makes you mad or indignant or frustrated, or maybe you feel that way because you yourself have been wronged. You can harness it and you can you can make change in the world. Yeah, Those use it for good. Absolutely. Channel your anger for something yeah. more meaningful than just holding on to the anger. I love that. Um, anything else we can do to support you before the final question? 
I, I feel very supportive. Okay. This has been a great conversation. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> I want to get the message out there. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, okay, Deborah. the final question is, what's your definition of greatness? Okay. Um, I'm going to say doing or being in ways that transcend self-interest and elevate the good of another person mm. or other people. Mm. That's greatness. Mm. Deborah, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you Amazing. so much. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and it inspired you on your journey towards greatness. Make sure to check out the show notes in the description for a full rundown of today's show with all the important links. And also make sure to share this with a friend and subscribe over on Apple Podcasts as well. I really love hearing feedback from you guys. So share a review over on Apple and let me know what part of this episode resonated with you the most. And if no one's told you lately, I want to remind you that you are loved, you are worthy, and you are matter. And now it's time to go out there and do something great. 